Well, I read the story recently of a television interviewer who was walking the streets of downtown Tokyo at Christmas time. And he stopped a young lady on the street to interview her, and he asked her this question. He says, what is the meaning of Christmas? She had a nervous little laugh, and then she responded with, I don't know. She said, is that the day that Jesus died? You know, we snicker in our hearts when we hear an answer like that because we think, oh, woman, you couldn't be farther from the truth. But at the same time, there was a lot of truth in her statement. See, the Bible says that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain before the foundation of the world was laid. Let me just say it another way. Jesus was slain not only before the foundation of the earth, but he was slain before the foundation of his birth. The incontrovertible truth that Jesus was born to die for our sins is the side to the Christmas story that we don't hear preached by many preachers. His birth, as breathtaking as it must have been, did not save us from our sins. His sinless life, as awesome and spectacular as it must have been, did not save us from our sins. In fact, His amazing teachings did not save us from our sins. It was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus himself that saved us from our sins and gave us the hope of this eternal salvation. But this miracle was put into motion at his birth. As I was thinking about the Christmas story and Mary having little Jesus, I just couldn't help but think, I wonder how many times she took those little bitty hands and just started kissing his little hands. <laughs> just kissing those little hands and those little feet. Isn't that what all parents do to their children? Come on, talk to me about this. You all did it to your children, right? Just enjoying the moment of his birth, captivated by the joy of his birth, totally oblivious at that time that the very little hands and feet that she were kissing, one day nails would be driven through them as he hung on an old rugged cross. She just couldn't stop kissing him. As it turns out, as I thought about that story, I think that woman from Tokyo got it right. She was more accurate than what she knew. Jesus' purpose for being born was not so that he could live. His purpose for being born was so that he could die for all the sin of the entire world. So I want to minister for a few minutes this morning through a message I'm calling Christmas Bread. Oh man, it's a big subject in the Bible. I found out there's 361 times over the course of 330 verses where this word bread comes up. You know, I can't think of a food that tantalizes my sense of smell. (laughs) Oh man, Uh, you know, than, than fresh baked bread. You know what I'm saying? When it's baking in the oven, my saliva glands just kind of water. You know what I'm saying? I don't know of anything that tastes as delectable as fresh baked bread. Do I have a witness in this place this morning on that? Thank you, sir. (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) ma'am. I I want you to see that that loaf of bread coming out of the oven. It's got its dome shape to the top. It's all gold encrusted. And you take that bread knife and you just slice right down to a nice big thick slice of bread. And while it's still warm in your hand and you're blowing on it because it's burning in your hand, you take and lay that knife down, you grab your sterling silver butter knife, and you dip it into butter. (laughs) And man, just as quick as you can spread it, it just melts right on top of that bread. 
Now you've not only got the bread, but you've got the butter in the atmosphere. And then you could take your honey and you can drizzle your honey on top of it. I like honey. Uh, you can drizzle your honey on top of it. Or if you like marmalade or, or if you like preserves or whatever you like, just put it on top of your bread. Now you get time. You can lay that knife down, by the way. Now you get time to eat it. <laughs> oh, every single bite mm, is so delicious. And when you're all done, you, you make sure there's no crumbs hanging on your lip. And you just tuck them all in if that is the case. Oh, man. Isn't it good? Isn't fresh bread good? You know, I went through that little charade to make you hungry for bread. <laughs> when you present Jesus the right way, he said, you're going you're to make them very, very hungry for what you've got. And he says, there'll be an aroma that manifests in the atmosphere like that bread. And I've seen that happen so many times. Not just any bread. Christ mass bread. Christmas bread. You say, Mark, what do you mean by making people hungry? Uh, what do you mean presenting Jesus the right way? You see, when we present him as who he is, he is the bread of life. When we present him for who he is, he is living water. When we present Him for who He is, altogether lovely. When we present Him for who He is, the darling of heaven, full of grace and truth, it's going to make people very, very hungry for Christmas bread. Several years ago, it was in the late 1990s, I went and ministered at a friend of mine's church up in central Wisconsin. He asked me to come up and do a weekend revival. And... I had an aunt, my daddy's sister that lived in that town, Aunt Virginia. We called her Aunt Jenny. Aunt Jenny, I'm not kidding you, she had no education. If you would have asked Aunt Jenny, what is five times five? I'm not kidding you, Aunt Jenny wouldn't have been able to tell you. But Aunt Jenny had a heart as big as her body, but at the same time, she was without Christ. I knew that. And so I was going to minister at this weekend revival. And on Saturday, I went and ministered at my friend's church. Before Sunday rolled around, I called my Aunt Jenny. And I said, Aunt Jenny, I'm in town. I'm going to be ministering at my friend's church. Can I pick you up for church? And she said, yes, you can pick me up for church. And so I went and picked up Aunt Jenny for service that day. When Jenny said in that service on Sunday morning, oh man, I had a delight making Jesus look good. <laughs> I didn't even have this message of grace yet in my heart the way I have it now, but I made Jesus look good. I presented him as fresh bread. I presented him as the bread of life. I kept presenting him as altogether lovely one, and he'll do what he says he'll do. In fact, he's already done what he said he's, he was going to do. And Jenny was listening, of course, and when I took Jenny home that day, I felt the Holy Spirit say, step out of the car and walk her to the door. And so I stepped out of my car and I walked her to the door. Instead, I said, Jenny, let's step in the backyard here. And so we went to her backyard. It was in her backyard that I really began to unwrap Jesus and make him look so simple and so delectable, so delightful, so tasteful. And it was there Jenny said, I want him. I want him right now. See, friends, I'm telling you, we make evangelism so complicated it's not designed to be complex. You make Jesus look good, and you just preach his word. Talk about his word, and I'm going to tell you something. You'll see results happen. Uh, Jenny said, I want him right now. And I just put my arms around my Aunt Virginia, and I prayed, and she prayed with me. And when we got done, I think we opened our eyes about the same time, and she let out this loud scream, scared the stuffings out of me. <laughs> this loud scream. It was a joyful scream. 
what I knew right there is something just happened in my aunt's heart that she had never seen, ever felt before, ever experienced before, and she was just, she couldn't contain herself. All that came just simply from standing in a pulpit and then standing in a backyard. See, it doesn't matter where you're at. You can be in a pulpit doing it. You can be in a backyard. You can be in a sewer. I'm going to tell you something. If you make Jesus look good, you'll see results happen. Period. You know, I, I ministered at my friend's homegoing celebration last Saturday and saw God do some awesome things there. My friend was 53 years old, went home to be with the Lord, left seven children and a wife behind. After the service, we went on to the cemetery, and then after the cemetery, we came back to the church to break bread with one another. And I was talking to a pastor I'd met from Indiana who was getting the message of grace, and I was so delighted that he was getting the message of grace. And I sat right next to him. I was gleaning from him. He was gleaning from me. And then all of a sudden, there was a little four-year-old girl that appeared right there, just standing there looking at me. And I looked at her, and I said, how you doing? She just had this little smile, didn't say anything. I said, what is your name? She said, Amaya. I said, Amaya. I said, well, that's a beautiful name. And you're such a beautiful little girl. She just smiled. Her mother was sitting way down at the other end and her grandmother right across from her. And about that time, I heard the grandma get up. And the grandma said, come on, Amaya. She thought the little girl was bothering me. She wasn't bothering me, really. So she said, come on, Amaya. Grandma started walking down towards us. When she saw Grandma coming, that little stranger girl, never met her before, jumped up in my lap, threw her arms around my neck, and was holding me as tight as she could. Grandma had to come down, stick a crowbar between us. Oh, well, it wasn't exactly that. It was like her. But she had to pull the little girl off of me. And when she walked away with Amaya, I thought, God, what was that? And I looked at the grandma about five minutes later, and I said, was that little girl present in the service when I was eulogizing Brother Doug today? And she said, yes. I said, okay, now it explains it. You see, listen, I'm telling you, when you make Jesus look good, when you talk about the goodness of the Father, the scripture will be fulfilled, suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. They're drawn. I mean, she was sitting in the service. She couldn't possibly comprehend the verbiage I was using. You made Jesus look good. And the result of that is you will win the hearts from the youngest to the oldest. As my friend used to say, from the uttermost to the guttermost, you'll win them all in Jesus' name. So in preparation for this message, I came to realize how precious and how beautiful God's Word is. You know, as I was looking at the Christmas story, Like I said, I didn't glean a lot of revelation uh, from it, a lot of things I hadn't seen before. But there was no story that touched me deeper in my own study at home than this story. I kept weeping all week long. And I would come out from my study and I would look at my wife and she's like, you look very weepy. And I said, I don't know what's going on. This Christmas story is affecting me. Just the simplicity of the Christmas story of Jesus being born. It's the power of the Christmas story itself. It's the power of the Word itself. And it doesn't need a lot of revelation. Just preach the Word, make Jesus look good, make Him look like the bread of life like He is, and I'm going to tell you something, things will happen. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. They call it the Olive Grove, the Garden of Gethsemane. And as I was meditating on that, I happen to think about the Olive Garden (laughs) right down the street here. It's one of my favorite places to eat. I want to tell you one of the things I really like about the Olive Garden. I like those breadsticks. I like those breadsticks. And what's amazing with those breadsticks is they come wrapped in swaddling 
clothes, <laughs> lying in a little manger, you know. Oh, man. And so I came to this conclusion, you know, as I was meditating on that. It wouldn't make any difference in terms of the taste of those breadsticks if they came in that ordinary basket or if they came on a golden platter. It wouldn't make any difference. They taste exactly the same. I've come by today to tell you that when Jesus was born, he wasn't born in a mansion. He was born in a manger, but it didn't change the taste that comes off of Jesus. The Bible says in Psalm 34, verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. When I eat those breadsticks, there's no new revelation. They bake them the same way every single time. They serve them the same way every time. Yet I never tire of eating them. So it is with the Christmas story. We don't have to have a new presentation. They're not going to get me to like the breadsticks anymore if they bring them out wrapped any other way than they always do. Are you with me on this? Just enjoy the Christmas bread. The story of Christmas bread actually begins in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And when I saw that this week, I thought, man, that message needs to be on every single Christmas card that is sent. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you because so many people do not believe that they're highly favored. Even in the body of Christ, I've come by today to tell you, you, you are. You are highly favored and the Lord is always with you. Oh, man. That's what the angel said. He said, greetings, you who are highly favored. And that word favored is the Greek word haristao. Haristao. It means grace. So when he said that, he said, greetings to you who are highly graced. But the interesting thing about that word right there, haristao, it's a verb. It's a verb. And we know with verbs requires an action. So we're thinking, what did Mary do? What did Mary do to get this favor? See, because there was an action. It says right there, haristao. It's a verb. So the question becomes, whose action made Mary favored? Whose action made you favored? Whose action made me favored? You know, you can settle that just by two scriptures found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So you can see, it wasn't an action on our part. He said, you have been highly graced. Now, this time when they use grace, it's not used as haristao. It's just used as haris. We say charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, haris. It's the noun version. A noun is a person, place, or thing. And so now they're talking about a person. For by grace are you saved, or a simple way to just say it is by Jesus. By Jesus are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So you say, man, are you sure it means Jesus there when it says, for by grace are you saved? Are you sure that means Jesus right there? I am positive. You see, in Acts 4.12, the Bible says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved, except that name of Jesus. No other name under heaven given among men, whereby we get this favor, except Jesus Christ. He's the gift of God. He is the Christmas bread of God. 
So Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. It's wild in the Bible how every time an angel shows up, he's got to say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Even Jesus, when he would go to his disciples, he would say, don't be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. Fear and deception are the only weapons the enemy's got on you. And when you get fear out of the way, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to live life totally different in Christ. So the angel comes and says, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. There's that word again. In the noun version, haras, which means grace. In other words, you have found Jesus with God. You have found this Christmas bread with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, will never end. His kingdom is a government. His kingdom is grace. And he's literally saying, my kingdom of grace will never end, never pass away. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then he goes on to say, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. For she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month of pregnancy. And then he says, for nothing is impossible with God. I like how the New International Version says it. It says, for no word from God will ever fail. Nothing is impossible from God. Nothing is impossible with God. No word, and that word, word there, is not just the written word. We know that won't fail. But that word there is the word rhema. No rhema word that you get from God. So I'm going to tell you something. Hold on to the promises that God has made you. Because he says, no word will ever fail. Mary, the angel said, I'm telling you this is what's going to happen. And no word will ever fail. And then she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And then this song began to play in Mary's heart in the quietness of her house. Mary, did you know the Christmas bread has just been placed in your oven? <laughs> Mary, did you know he'll save the world beginning with the dozen disciples? Did you know? Mary, did you... I mean, that's not exactly how it went, you know, I mean, but it was something like that in her heart, you know. That's when it all happened. Precious Jesus was just put right inside of Mary. What a day that must have been. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And then it says, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. He was a righteous man. But let me tell you what made him righteous, okay? Because Joseph was under the law. Mary was under the law. Jesus hadn't died yet. So the New International Version actually says it this way, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph had a real tug of war going on in his heart. You see, what Joseph knew was <laughs> there's only one way to get pregnant. You could have had all kinds of eggs floating around in you, Mary, but two eggs does not make a baby. 
Two sperms does not make a baby. It takes a sperm and an egg to make a baby. So, I mean, if you think about this now, he's got a tug of war going on in his heart because he knows he's not been with Mary yet. So the only other way this could have happened in his heart, in his mind, is she had to have been unfaithful. So the Bible says he wanted to be faithful to the law, but guess what? Love. Love was pulling him in a different direction. It was a tug of war between the law and this love. It's the same tug of war that used to go on in my heart before it was established in righteousness, before it was established in truth and and in grace and the unconditional love of God. And so many believers keep allowing the law. They keep allowing the traditions of men. They keep allowing doctrine The law to pull love across the line when love is designed, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love has been designed to win every tug of war. The Bible says love never fails. I love to say it this way, according to this message, Christmas bread always wins. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. Joseph's name means increase. David's name means beloved. You see where I'm going? (laughs) Joseph's name means increase. David's name means beloved. And he said to him, Joseph, son of David, okay, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, son of David, increase. Beloved, when you embrace the message of Christmas bread, When you embrace the message of altogether lovely, when you embrace the message of the heart of the Father, when you embrace the message of grace and truth, the effect will be you will increase in the awareness that you are His beloved. Simple. You begin to increase. That has been the beauty of my walk and my journey over these, especially these last five years. I've been increasing in the awareness in the knowledge, if you will, but in the awareness, in the revelation that I'm his beloved. I always see myself as his beloved. Even on days when I thought wrong things and, and not responded the way I should have responded, I still see myself increasing in the awareness that I am his beloved. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Can you just say that name with me, really? Jesus. Oh, man. Jesus. Is there any sweeter name? No. No, there's not. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. So Matthew's talking, right? And he's saying, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So who was Matthew quoting? Matthew reached back in the archives. Matthew reached back into the Old Testament, and he was quoting a prophet, and he quoted him almost verbatim. It was Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14. This is what Isaiah said. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will call him Emmanuel. Friends, this is none other than a messianic prophecy of the coming Christmas bread himself, Jesus Christ. So when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And so what happened is it was prophesied not only in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, but also Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then he says, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Let me say it again. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. The apostle who had the greatest revelation of Jesus and the greatest revelation of grace was the apostle Paul. And he was the man. He was the grace man. And Paul opens every one of his letters. Go check it out one time. I mean, whether it's to the Corinthians or to the Romans or the Philippians or whatever. He opens up every one of his letters by saying, grace and peace be unto you. So this prophetic word here of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, is literally saying his government is going to be a government of grace. The government of grace and the government of peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Then we step into Matthew chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew is quoting a messianic prophecy from the book of Micah when he just said that. And in Micah chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 we find these words so you can see where Matthew was getting this. It says, marshal your troops now city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. It's interesting that he would add that word to Bethlehem, Ephrathah, because Bethlehem was known in two places at the time. So he was being very specific, it's this Bethlehem. So he was saying, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old and ancient of days. Now, who are they talking about here? Is it clear that they're talking about Jesus? Oh, yeah, he's the ancient of days. I looked at this word, Ephrathah. It literally means an ash heap or a place of fruitfulness. And I thought, wait, wait a minute, wait a second now. Ash heap, place of fruitfulness? That seems to be an oxymoron. They seem to be totally different. But I remember seeing something on television not too long ago. My wife was watching something, and I saw something where what they do, they used to when they, uh, you know, everybody heated with wood and cooked with wood, they would take the ashes, the wood ashes, and people still do it to this day. They would take it out and they would use those wood ashes as fertilizer around their plants and around their vines and whatnot. They would use that as fertilizer. And so when I looked it up, it says like this. It told me this. The potassium in wood ashes encourages strong stems in plants, while the phosphorus in ashes encourages root growth. 
So he knew what he was talking about when he said Bethlehem Ephrathah. And so the Lord took me back in Gen- to Genesis, the place where that Ephrathah comes up for the very first time. I said, Lord, where does this come up? What is the depth of this word? What is the depth of this meaning? It's Genesis chapter 35 and verse 16. It's the place and time where Rachel is giving birth to her son, Benjamin. She's already had Joseph. Now it's Benjamin's turn. Benjamin's name literally means the son of his right hand. Do you see how the word is connected? I mean, they're talking, who is the son of God's right hand? Who is the son that's sitting at his right hand? It's Christ. And what does Joseph, Benjamin's older brother's name mean? Increase. The only way we increase is when we step into Christ and we get this realization of his grace and how good he is. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, son of the right hand, continuing in Micah chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock. I love that. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Let me ask you a question. What do you think the name Bethlehem means? Bethlehem means the house of bread. The house of bread. Do you think it's coincidence that Jesus was born in the house of bread? I don't find that to be a coincidence, friend. Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. And that's where the inspiration, when I was looking at that scripture, that's where the inspiration for this message title, Christmas Bread, came from. He was our Christmas bread. He is our Christmas bread. He was born in the house of bread. In other words, what they were saying by Bethlehem, Ephrathah, they were saying, out of the house of bread came the son of the right hand, Christ. Christmas bread, the bread of life, if you will. His name is Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, Judah, come on, it means praise. Judy, Judah, Judah, Judea, all means praise. I don't know about you, but I'm still praising my father for serving me Christmas bread. It was August 7th of 1995, five minutes after midnight, when he came knocking on my door and said, would you like some Christmas bread? I'm like, it's August. (laughs) No, you're going to really enjoy this Christmas bread. And you know what? I I I thought about this many times. I almost said no that night. I was at the hungriest point of my entire life. I was at the, the most hurting point in my life, the most harassing time in my life. And when the Holy Spirit came knocking on my door that night, I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again. As a gentleman, he said to me, tonight will be your last opportunity to say yes to Jesus. I don't say that to manipulate anybody. I think we're, we're in a room full of believers. I've never heard anybody else say it quite like that. But I know I heard the voice of the Lord. I don't know what would have happened, but I assume what would have happened is my heart would have become so hardened at that point because my life couldn't have got any worse than that night. I mean, I was falling apart. And when the Holy Spirit said, tonight's the last opportunity for you to come to get to know me, I said, yes, and I knelt beside the bed. And I can still hear the whisper on that summer night. It's echoing in the corners of my heart. When I said yes to Jesus and ate of that Christmas bread, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. 
as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. It's not what he wants, right? That's what he's making them to believe. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, this not stopping over the, the manger at this point. Jesus is already grown. He might be a year old, maybe up to even two years old at this point in time. Because the Bible says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming into the house. Not the manger, but coming into the house. They saw the child. They saw that little loaf of bread. <laughs> they saw Jesus with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures, and they presented to him gold and frankincense and myrrh. What great gifts. You see, one thing I love about frankincense and myrrh is long after you touch somebody with it, you can still smell that smell. That's one thing I've loved about going to hospitals and visiting people that were in the hospital and anointing them with frankincense and myrrh. Long after you're gone, that sweet fragrance is still in the air. I've been touched. Somebody loves me. Somebody cares about me. Somebody prayed for me. And that prayer just keeps coming up in their heart and we'll get them out of there. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for that child to kill him. You know, when I was thinking about this, I mean, they're starting off in Bethlehem. Now they're going to bounce over here to Egypt, stay there for a little while. Then they're going to bounce back over here to Nazareth. That was what my childhood was like. We were always bouncing around. And I'm thinking, man, I'm in good company, man. They were doing it here too. Here's the amazing thing. Couldn't God just have supernaturally said, Bubble, <laughs> you can't pen. He's going to stay right here. If you don't like it, you move. Couldn't he have done I guess, Probably, I guess. But it's a pattern. It's a pattern to show us. Listen, there are sometimes situations and circumstances in our life that may drive us from here to there. But I'm going to tell you something. Remember, Emmanuel means God is with us. That's the important part. God is with us. Whether you're in Egypt or you're in Israel or the United States of America, God is always with you. When they had gone again, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and dreamed, get up, take his mother and escape to Egypt and the child, of course. Stay there until I tell you, for here is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. I love that the Old Testament prophetic words that just show you everything that's going to unfold. You know the chances of making those things happen are, man, astronomical. It had to be the hand of God. It had to be the hand of the Lord. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, which means crowned, and it means sanctified. So was fulfilled what was said to the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Well, the Christmas bread begins to mature over the years. It's amazing when we look in the Bible, we see him as a boy, a little bitty boy. And they see one snapshot of him at 12 years old in the temple, and then all of a sudden he's in ministry. You know, meanwhile, he's a carpenter. He's building houses. He's making furniture. But we don't hear much about his life. But when he stepped into his ministry, he stepped into a ministry to impart this Christmas bread, if you will. 
in John chapter 6, we find it opening, and it's really for the first bunch of scriptures, it's all about bread. Jesus has just gotten through feeding the 5,000 men plus their wives and children with bread and fish. And then we'll skip up to verse 22. On the next day, the people who remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So after he got done feeding the 5,000, there was a boat right there on the Sea of Galilee. And all 12 of his disciples got in the boat and went across the lake. But Jesus stayed behind, and they saw that. But it was that night that Jesus came walking out on the water. He didn't need a boat, does he? He came walking out on the water. And his disciples were afraid again. And then finally he said, it's just me, Jesus. And the Bible says they took him into the boat. And so these people had saw this. It says, however, boats from Tiberias came near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the people saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum. We say Capernaum, it's Capernaum. I love what it means. It means the field of repentance, the city of comfort. That's what we do in Triumphant Grace Ministries. We don't beat you up and say, come to the altar, you need to repent. Now listen, I've heard those sermons, I get them. But every time you hear his word of grace and his word of love, you know what it's doing? It's changing your heart, it's changing your mind. That's what repentance is. It's just a change of mind. It doesn't even have to come with tears. It can come with laughter. It can come with joy. It's the field of repentance and the city of comfort. They got into their boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. How wise is that? When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves or you ate your fill of bread. Isn't that amazing? Jesus read their email. He said, this is the reason you're really seeking me, is because I really just fed you good, didn't I, yesterday. Do you think Jesus was wrong? Oh, believe me, he nailed it. He knew their motivation. He said, this is the reason you're seeking me, because you had your fill of the loaves. And he says to them, do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him has God the Father set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? It's the same question believers keep asking all the time. They said, you know, exactly what is it we need to be doing in order to do the works of God? You want to hear Jesus' answer? (laughs) Oh, man. Well, first of all, let me say this. My friend that just went on to be with the Lord, he asked me that question, I bet you, a hundred times over the years. I'm not kidding. He must have asked me a hundred times, Mark, I just want to know what God's will is concerning ministry. I said, how many kids you got? Seven. You got a wife? Yep. There's your ministry, friend. That's what I would tell him. And I would never change my story. You still got seven kids, Brother Doug? Yep. That's still your ministry. Listen, if you've got time left over to go and serve at the church, go for it. I'm a huge proponent for serving at the church. I'm a huge proponent for serving in ministry. I've done it all my life. But I said, friends, your ministry begins at home with those seven children. Raise up those seven young men and women of God. And you know what? I saw that happen. I saw that happen when I heard every one of his children stand at his funeral, at his home-going celebration, and talk about their daddy. I'm like, oh, what a man of God he must have been. I, of course, already knew that, but I'm thinking, wow. I said, that is your ministry. 
And so they're asking Jesus essentially, what is my ministry? What must we do to be doing the will of God? So they have this performance-based mentality. What do I have to do to perform? And Jesus said to them, drum roll please, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. What? They were dumbfounded. No, no, no. You misunderstood the question. So let's, I'm going to rephrase it here, okay? And watch, they're going to rephrase the question here in a second. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And then they said, what work do you perform? Do you see how they flip-flop the question? First of all, it's about what do we do? Now, all right, somebody's got to do something here now. So if it ain't us, it's got to be you. What work do you do? What work do you perform? And then they said, our fathers, they got all spiritual on them. Our fathers, our ancestors, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. All that manna was is a type and shadow of Jesus. The real bread of life, wasn't it? Our fathers, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, what he was literally saying, they were saying is, Moses is responsible for this. Our fathers ate manna. That man of God, Moses, my ancestor, man, my daddy, who am I shirt-tailed daddy, he's the one who provided. And Jesus said, wait, stop a second now. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses. Let's get this straight, okay? <laughs> Let's give Moses credit where Moses needs credit. But that was not Moses. That was my daddy. That was my daddy serving the manna. That was my daddy serving this bread. He says, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father, see, bread, bread, bread's everywhere. My father gives you the, and then I love what he says, true bread. Not just bread, it's the true bread. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then in verse 33, he says, for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, they said to him, Oh Lord, give us this bread forever. Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the Christmas bread. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. When you bite off of this bread, you're not going to hunger anymore. And he says to them, And he who believes in me shall never thirst. In closing, I have this thought. One of the last things you see Jesus doing before he dies is serving Christmas bread. I'm going to ask Lauren and Janet to come as I read these scriptures and serve the Christmas bread. It's the communion. It's the communion. That's what Christmas bread is all about. And we see it so beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. It says, For I have received of the Lord that which was also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body. This is my Christmas bread for you. It's been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, as often as you eat my flesh, as often as you eat my body, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death until 
He comes. I read a story recently, talked about a man that lived long ago. He was a ruler in Persia, and he was a wise and good king. He loved his people, and he wanted to know how they lived. He wanted to know and be able to identify with their hardships. So there were times that he would dress as a working man. There were times that he would dress as a beggar, and he would go to the homes of the poor. No one that he visited knew that he was the king. No one knew that he was the ruler. He was like the undercover boss, if you will. One time he visited a very poor man who lived in a cellar. The king ate the same rotten food that the beggar ate. But the king decided to speak cheerfully to this man, kind words. And then the king got up and he left. Later he visited the poor man again and disclosed his identity by saying, I am your king. The king thought the man would surely ask for some sort of gift or some sort of favor, but he didn't. Instead, the beggar said to him, you mean you left your palace? You left your glory to visit me in this dark, dreary place? It's the same thing as the Christmas story. You mean, Jesus, you got up from heaven and you left all the glory of heaven to come and be born in a stable? It doesn't make sense. The beggar said, you ate the same coarse food I ate. He said, you brought gladness to my heart. To others, you have given your rich gifts, but to me, you have given yourself. Oh, how sweet. Friends, the King of glory, the darling of heaven, the Christmas bread, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself to you. He gave himself to me at Christmas time. The Bible calls him the unspeakable gift. You call him what you want. You call him wonderful counselor. You call him mighty God. You call him everlasting father. You call him prince of peace. I call him Jesus, my Christmas bread. Father, thank you as we receive the bread of the Lord Jesus Christ and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the juice and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that when we receive this, we're put in remembrance of this awesome bread. And Father, when we said yes to Jesus and we took Jesus in, we took the bread of life in, we thank you, Father, that nothing can ever change that. We're eternally secure in Jesus Christ. But Father, when we take in the bread, we take in the, the juice, we take in the blood, we're reminded of what you did for us, not what we did for you. If we examine ourselves, we would only find that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. And in us, you say, I am well pleased. So Father, with my brothers and sisters at Christmas time, we thank you for the treasure of Jesus. We thank you, Father, he's no longer a baby. He's no longer in a manger. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and we thank you, Father, as we receive his body and his blood right now, we receive it with great grace, such grace, amen.